We will be studying uh, Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9 this morning. Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He loves us so much that He would speak to us this way. Father, we ask that this morning we would receive this Word from Him, from You in love. That You love us so much that You would warn us about behaviors and sins that would lead us to hell. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for the grace and mercy of warning in the Bible. Lord, we ask that we would receive it this morning. We pray that if there are ways in our lives, God, that we need to cut things off, that You would help us do that. Help us have the strength, the courage, the love for You and love for Your Word and love for Your glory to do that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would Work in us that we might be all that You want us to be as individuals, as parents, as husbands and wives, as children, as a pastor, as church members, as Christians, Lord, as as who You've made us to be, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, You would work in our hearts and show us our sin, show us our need for You, show us... Lord, the beauty of what You've saved us from, the beauty of what You've saved us to. We, we pray that as believers, we would be able to meditate upon hell and Your wrath always with a sense of joy and relief. Knowing that this is what You've saved us from. That we will not face this only with Your eyes will You look and see the reward of the wicked, the Bible says. That's us. Lord, thank You. Thank You, God. Thank You for saving us. It's always a good day when we remember we've been saved from hell. And yet that's all we deserve. And so God, teach us now by Your Spirit. Let us hear from the King of Kings. I pray You would help me say what I ought to say in the way that I ought to say it. Help me preach in such a way that I won't regret even one word that I've spoken. May I speak the truth in love and humility. May we hear from You, God. And may You make us all that You want us to be. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus teaching that those who follow Him must humble themselves just like Jesus did. We saw that Jesus is the God-man who must be received in humility like a little child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, and those who receive Jesus will love and serve the least and most insignificant of the children of God. We saw that to love and serve the least and most insignificant of the children of God is the same as loving and serving Jesus Himself. Because Jesus told us in Matthew 18.5, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. We also saw that if you touch one of these little ones who believe in Jesus, then you touch Jesus, and this really upsets Him. We saw that in Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. 
In other words, if you touch God's people, then you touch Jesus. Jesus taught us this in Acts 9 when He confronted the Apostle Paul. Remember that? Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is he going to persecute? The church. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You touch God's people, you touch Jesus. If you touch God's people, you touch God. Zechariah 2.8 For thus said the Lord of hosts after His glory sent me to the nations who plundered you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You touch a Christian, you touch the apple of God's eye. You touch Jesus, you touch God's people, you touch God, you touch God's people. Jesus is God. One pastor said, how you treat other Christians is exactly how you treat Jesus Christ. Today, we see Jesus is the God-man who warns us not to tempt others because He hates sin and He commands us to fight for holiness with extreme measures lest we end up in hell because He loves us. Jesus is the God-man who warns us not to tempt others because He hates sin and He commands us to fight for holiness, to fight to be like Christ with extreme radical measures lest we end up in hell because He loves us. One pastor summarized these verses this way, we protect one another. This is about us as a church protecting one another. We're concerned for one another's holiness and we're concerned for our own holiness. And so, point number one, temptation is unavoidable in this fallen world. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. This world is cursed with sin and temptation. This is because our first parents sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And because they sinned, sin came into the world. Because Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And woe is upon this world. God's woe, God's curse, God's judgment. We deserve this because of the sin of Adam and Eve and because of our own sin. And Jesus teaches us here, it is necessary that temptations come. It is necessary because God cursed this world because of sin. Remember when God cursed the world. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a conflict going on in the world between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is part of the curse, part of the woe. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it in hope. God has subjected this world to futility. He has cursed this world because of sin. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. We live in a cursed, fallen, broken world. D.A. Carson comments, the necessity does not spring from divine compulsion, but like all things, falls within the sphere of His sovereignty so that He may use those very things to accomplish His plans and perfect His people. And so temptation is unavoidable in this fallen world. You are not going to escape it, believer. You're not going to escape temptation in this world. Point number two. Jesus warns not to be the one leading others into temptation. Temptation is unavoidable, but Jesus here warns us, His disciples and us, not to be the ones leading others into temptation. The second part of verse seven. But woe to the one whom the tem- by, by, uh, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus pronounces a woe, a curse, a warning on those who would tempt others to sin. Remember, just, Jesus has just warned in verse six: Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. 
What does woe mean? Craig Blumberg comments, it's an exclamation of how greatly one will suffer, mingled with doom and pity and lament and warning. It's a warning and a lament of God's coming judgment. This world is cursed. This world is broken. This world is full of sin and temptations that are necessary and will come, but you and I and we should strive and fight to be careful to avoid all sin and strive and fight and be careful not to tempt others to sin or lead others into sin. We are responsible for our actions. And Jesus is warning those who sin and lead others into sin. He says, woe to you. God will not be pleased with you. Don't lead others into temptation. What does it mean to lead others into temptation? You do this any time that you lead someone away from God and His truth by your actions or lack of actions or by your words or by your lack of words. You lead someone away from God, you're leading them into temptation. You lead someone away from God's truth by your actions or lack of actions, you're leading them into temptation. You lead someone away from God by your words or lack of words, you're leading them into temptation. Here are some examples. We can lead others into temptation or sin by provoking one another to anger. Ephesians 6.4 warns fathers about this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is true for fathers. It's true for mothers. It's true for any of us. We can provoke people to anger and lead them into temptation. We can lead others into temptation through sexual sin. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I was listening to a a podcast by Elizabeth Elliot, and she was doing a QA and a with her husband at the time, and and they got the question, what if your boyfriend pressures you to have sex? (laughs) And uh, her husband said, tell him to take a hike. Find another boyfriend. if, If someone's trying to lead you into sin that way, they're not living like Christians. They don't know God. We're not to lead one another into sexual sin. Husbands can tempt their wives to sin by being harsh with them. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3.7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands are to be careful how they treat their wives and relate to their wives and and they're to be careful to love them as Christ loves the church. But they can lead them into temptation. God warns about that. We can lead others into temptation with lust. 1 Timothy 2.9 Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty and self-control. Rosaria Butterfield has a new book coming out, Five Lies in a anti-Christian world and she writes the fashion industry for girls sets them up to be tempters to young men. How many of you read that sentence and think I'm being unfair and blaming the victim? Modesty and dress, speech and conduct are good practices helping us safeguard against our own sin and against being a temptation for others. If a man sins, the sin is on him. But anything we can do to help prevent scandal in the church is a good work indeed. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the Word of God. We love His truth. We love His glory. And we don't want to tempt others to sin against God. That's Jesus' point here. We don't want to tempt others to sin against God. We want to be careful and love one another by helping one another follow Jesus and not lead them away from Jesus. And we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility illustrated in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. God is sovereign over all of that. 
But woe to the one by whom temptation comes. You are responsible. Beloved, you're going to see that all over the Bible, and you're going to think, oh, how does this fit? How does this work? Well, it works because the Bible says it. You might not be able to figure it out, but the Bible teaches all over the place. God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything that happens, and you and I are absolutely responsible for our thoughts, behaviors, feelings, and actions. You see it at the cross. You see it at the cross. The, the greatest evil that ever occurred and the greatest good that ever occurred in one event. Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God ordained the cross, and yet these men acted wickedly, and God will judge them for their wicked acts. God is sovereign. Mankind is responsible. We see it in our sanctification, in our desire to, to, to fight sin and be holy and grow in Christ's likeness. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We're told, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in what we, am I saying that right? God works in what we work out. Am I saying that right, Anthony? Yeah, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you see God put together His sovereignty and our responsibility right there. God is working in us. He's working in us by His Spirit to make us more like Christ. And we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. God is sovereign and man is responsible. We see that in verse 7. And so temptation is unavoidable in this fallen world. Jesus warns us not to be the ones leading others into temptation. And point number three, Jesus tells us to fight sin with extreme radical measures in order to avoid going to hell. Look at verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What is Jesus not saying? What, what, let, let, let's, let's talk about that first. What Jesus is not saying... Jesus is not teaching that sin resides in our bodily members. Jesus teaches us that sin comes from the heart. Mark 7, 21-22, For from within, out of man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And so sin comes from our heart, but you can put yourself in situations that are more prone to cause the sin to gush out of your hearts. Ultimately, we want changed hearts, right? So, so when, when we, uh, you know, we, we, sometimes men struggle with pornography and we get on their phone and, and put a block or have covenant eyes, it's good. We, 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 we want to put those stops uh, so that people can't even get to the pornography, but, but what we want is a heart that doesn't even want to look at it. A heart that's so captivated with Jesus, so in love with Jesus, so, so mesmerized with the beauty of Jesus, that that stuff looks, feels, tastes like the smut, dirt, trash that it is. Because you just love Jesus. How can I, how can I, how can I eat tofu when I can have a ribeye? That won't be appropriate for everybody here, but, but, but how, how, how can I, how can I feast on dung when, when I can have, you know, tiramisu? I mean, that, 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 we, we want sin, we want our hearts to so change that sin becomes nasty. Sin becomes unthinkable. Sin becomes boring. Sin becomes the, the wicked and evil and, and, and unloveliness that it is to God. And Christ and Jesus and His commandments are gloriously beautiful, satisfying, and attractive. That's what we want. Our heart to be so changed 
that that happens. And that's what sanctification is, is God changes our heart and makes it more like that. But we, we want to take measures. We, have, we need the training wheels, so to speak. And so we, we need the covenant eyes that block websites we shouldn't go to. We may need to get rid of the phone altogether. Because it's better to suffer without a phone than to die and go to hell. We want heart change ultimately. Jesus is not teaching that we should literally and actually dismember ourselves. One early church father, Origen, actually castrated himself. It's Origen, right? Yeah. Uh, We don't want you doing that. Jesus does not want you doing that. You still would have one eye and one hand and one foot to sin with. You can still sin in your mind. One author says, Jesus is teaching us that it is our solemn duty to sacrifice what is nearest, dearest, most precious, or most necessary to ourselves if the sacrifice is essential to avoid sin and to live a holy life. Another commentator says, eyes, hands, and feet are all inclusive of what we view, what we do, and where we go. Nothing, not even things we value supremely like eyes, hands, and feet should stand in the way of eternal life. And finally, on these, what Jesus is not teaching. Jesus is not teaching that we earn heaven by the radical way we fight sin. Jesus is not teaching here that we earn heaven by the radical way that we fight sin. How, how do we get to heaven? <laughs> how do we get to heaven? Well, I love the gospel question. I've been using it more frequently lately to try to engage people. And most people I ask on the street get it wrong. What, what, if you died tonight, I try to find out their name. If, if you died tonight, John, and, and you stood before God, and He asked you, why should I let you into, into heaven, what would you say? What would you say? Answer that question in your own mind right now. Don't say it out loud, but just how would you answer that question? If you died tonight, and you stood before God, and He said... Why should I let you into heaven? It's a hypothetical question. God's not going to ask you that. But hypothetically speaking, how would you answer that question? What would you say? Why should God let you into heaven? Most people answer that question yourself. Most people that I ask that question say something like, I'm a good person. I had one guy say, I've done more good deeds than bad. Sometimes I get more religious people. I go to church. I'm a deacon. Sometimes people can get offended. I'm a pastor. Why are you asking me that? Somebody asked me. I'd love to tell them. It usually has something to do with I've done something that will cause me to enter heaven. What's the answer? The, the, the answer is, I, I, I answer this way, Lord, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I deserve hell. I'm a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I've not lived up to your perfect, sinless standard. I deserve your righteous judgment in hell forever. That's what I deserve. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved me, sent His Son Jesus to come into the world, and Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus is the God-man. Truly God and truly man. And He lived a perfect life of obedience. And then He died on the cross for my sins. He took the wrath of God that I deserve upon Himself. He took my sins upon Himself. And He was cursed by God His Father. And He died for my sins. And He was buried. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. And and, and I've believed in Him. I've turned from my sins. I've believed in Jesus. And so Jesus and His finished work is my only hope to go to heaven. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That, that's the right answer, right? And, and, and we can even know that answer and go to hell. The demons know the answer and they're going to go to hell. We have to trust Him. We have to truly trust Him and believe in Him and rest upon Him. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you get forgiven of your sins. 
through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to make God love you. You can simply receive Him by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. To him who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, all your sins are forgiven. His righteousness is counted as yours. And you are adopted in the family of God. And God justifies you. You're saved. You're a child of God. If, if that message is new to you, if you've not believed that message, I would love to speak with you afterwards. Please come and talk to me or someone other, uh, some, some other believer here. We want you to believe that message and be saved today because only people who believe that message and truly know Christ and are born again can, can apply this passage as they should. Because the people who are justified by God, who believe in Christ, who've been born again, that they are so transformed by the gospel that they will fight sin with radical extreme measures. They will. They will want to do whatever it takes to stop sinning. They will want to cut the hand and pluck the eye. They will want to get rid of the phone. They will want to take extreme radical measures that they won't sin or cause others to sin. They'll do things that are uncomfortable. So that they won't sin and lead others to sin. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Hands and feet are used in the Bible to describe what we do and where we go. Hands, for instance, Proverbs 6, 16-17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And on the list is hands that shed innocent blood. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. It's what we do, what we do with our hands. Feet. Proverbs 6, 18. Feet that make haste to run to evil is also something God hates. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Proverbs 4, 27. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. If you turn your foot from the Sabbath from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not doing your, going your own ways. Hands and feet describe what we do, where we go. So if we're doing anything that is sinful or going anywhere to sin or that will lead others into sin or lead us into sin, we should cut that doing off and cut that going off. We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cut off that sinful behavior and do not do sin and do not go where we will sin or where we, where we will be tempted to fall into sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Eyes are used in the Bible to describe the desires of our hearts. Remember when Eve was tempted by the serpent? Genesis 3.6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. Eyes are used in the Bible to describe the desires of our hearts. Ecclesiastes 2.10 And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So if you are desiring anything that is sinful or that will lead you into sin, you should cut that desire off. Beloved, this is a very important teaching of Jesus that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the actions that God looks at. It's not just the outward actions. It's the desire. If you have a desire that is sinful, if you have a desire to do something that is sinful, that desire must be cut off. That desire must be repented of. Lord, forgive me for wanting <laughs> to tell that person off. Yeah. Praise God that He kept you from telling that person off and losing your temper. But, 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 but God wants to even work in you such that you don't even have that desire to tell them off in the first place. That's sanctification. I remember reading a book, book about, about this, this lady's uh, sanctification process and she was talking about how she would tell people her mind and, and get angry and, and the Lord preserved her from doing that. And she was thankful and that, that was some progress. She, she didn't do it. She kept her mouth shut. But she wanted to. Oh, she wanted to. And then next in the process was she didn't want to as much. 
praise God, praise God, baby steps. And, and then she didn't want to, she didn't want to. And, and then she, she was able to truly, genuinely love and have compassion toward people when they treated them that way. That, that's the goal, right? To love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who, who persecute us. God changes our heart and our desires and, and we're to cut sinful desires off. Michael Green comments, does your hand offend you? The hand raised in anger or grasping at money? Does your foot offend you? The places it takes you to and the Christian service it declines to undertake? Does your eye offend you? The ever unsatisfied eye of the consumer society? Be single-minded. Deal ruthlessly with whatever causes you to stumble in your walk with Christ in the body of His church. Hands and feet and eyes not only refer to our desires and where, what we do and where we go, but hands, feet, and eyes are also very valuable to us. You need hands to work and function and take care of yourself. And especially, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's more prominent in that society that Jesus is speaking into. You needed your hands and feet to work. There was no at-home office stuff. <laughs> there was no speak and it types up on the computer for you. No, you needed hands and feet and eyes to work to make a living, to live. Or you might starve to death. Hands and feet and eyes are valuable to us. We need hands to work and function and take care of ourselves. We need feet to walk and work and take care of ourselves. You need eyes to see. Without them, we're helpless in a sense. And so this text is saying it's better to go without what is most valuable in this world and go to heaven than to keep what is most valuable in this world and go to hell. Someone has said it's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. Lloyd-Jones says if the most precious thing you have in a sense is the cause of sin, get rid of it. If the most precious thing you have, in a sense, is the cause of sin, get rid of it. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. May we take what is most valuable to us and give it all to Jesus. May we give Jesus our hands. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. The Bible talks about doing hard work with our hands and honoring the Lord by the way that we work and labor and are not lazy and, and work hard for the glory of God. Give Jesus your feet. Give Jesus your feet to tell others of this good news. Romans 10.15 How are we they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's how you have beautiful feet. Not spending $50 million on pedicures. Now you can get a pedicure and tell the gospel to that person giving it to you. That's beautiful feet. That's beautiful feet. Yes. Telling people about Jesus. Give, give Jesus your eyes. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we take what is most valuable to us and give it all to Jesus for His glory and use for His service. Jesus here is calling for extreme radical measures to fight against sin. I always think when I come to this passage, maybe not always, but often, I think of that movie, Fireproof. It's a great movie on, on marriage and, and people make fun of it for the acting. I think it's good anyway because it, it preaches the gospel and um, that's what's more important to me than good acting. Um, and there's a scene in there, the guy, the guy is trying to pursue his wife, but she's fed up with him, she wants a divorce, and one of the things she's fed up with him about is his pornography addiction. He's at the computer looking at porn when she walks in, and, and he can't stop it. But, but now, it seems God has saved him, and he wants to follow Christ in this. And uh, he realizes that this addiction is killing him and his wife and his relationship, so he takes the computer... Oh, you need the computer to work. You need the computer to communicate. I need the computer for email. I need the computer for that. Whatever. You don't need it. <laughs> it's better to go to heaven without a computer than go to hell with a computer. 
It's better to go to heaven without a cell phone than go to hell with it. And you may need to get rid of it. Boom! For the glory of Jesus. And he takes this computer, he takes it outside, he gets a baseball bat, he starts beating it. And he gets like two dozen roses. And he puts it at the desk where the computer was with a note to his wife that says, I love you more. I love that. I love that scene. Jesus is calling for extreme radical measures like that to fight against sin. Some people have changed jobs because of temptation in the workplace. Some people have moved away. I just need to move because of temptation. We've talked about getting rid of phones, getting covenant eyes on your phone, getting counseling. Go without whatever you think you can't go without. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. You, you need to be willing to go without whatever it is you think I can't go without. There's no way, pastor, I could go without that. There's no way I could live without that. There's no way I could live without that. You're right, you can't live without your eye and hand and feet. Jesus says, cut it off if it leads you to sin. So whatever that thing is you're thinking about now that I could never get rid of, Jesus is saying, get rid of it if it leads you to sin. That's the kind of radical extreme measures Jesus is talking about here. And I, I, I want you to notice what Jesus says because I just, I, I, I don't, I think we've been so influenced by things other than Jesus to, to, to think that Jesus would say something like this. That Jesus uses eternal hellfire to warn us, to warn his disciples not to sin. That doesn't go well in the gospel-centered movement. And I'm all for gospel-centeredness. I'm all for being cross-centered and Jesus-centered, but don't be more cross-centered than Jesus. That's my problem. And so, look, look, I mean, did you hear what Jesus says? It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. He's, he's telling his disciples that. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus uses hell as a motivation to obedience for His people. If you, if you know how to interpret that differently, please come and tell me. I'm open. Does God motivate His people to obey Him by warning them about the wrath to come in hell? Yes, He does. This is Jesus, the most loving, kind, gracious, wonderful, gentle, tender man who's ever lived. And, and I wonder if you do receive this as grace. Do you receive this as love today or do you just feel condemned? This is love. This is love. Jesus loves you. He loves me. He loves us. And so he warns us like this because he loves us. Kevin DeYoung has a wonderful book on this called The Whole in Our Holiness, and he, he talks about how there, there's not just one motivation to holiness in the Christian life. There's multiple ways that God motivates His people to obey Him, and one of them is warnings like this. He calls it the grace of fear. <laughs> Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He, he writes, we see a different kind of motivation in Colossians 3.6. Paul tells the Colossians to put away earthly desires and then says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is motivating them by the grace of fear. Some people have a very hard time understanding that threats and warnings are in the Bible for our sanctification. Of course, it's wonderfully true that God will keep His elect and preserve them to the end. But how do you think He accomplishes this work of preservation? One way is by warning them of what will happen if they do not persevere. In God's people, warnings like the one in verse 6 stir us up to love and good deeds. The Christian doesn't despair at these threats of judgment. He pleads, O oh Lord, keep me in the love of God as you have promised. 
We ought to see the warnings in Hebrews and in passages like this as God's means of persevering the saints, preserving the saints. Sometimes, in an effort to be gospel-centered, we shy away from the warnings in Scripture. I understand the impulse. We know that many tender souls need to hear how much God loves them. We need to hear about our new identity in Christ. We need to know God is for us and not against us. But there are also hard hearts in the church, maybe some reading this book, who need to know that the way they are living right now and the stuff they are into right now is why the wrath of God is coming. Some people need to be shaken from their lethargy and realize that the wrath of God will be poured out on the earth for the things they consider light and trivial offenses. Some people need the literal hell scared out of them. But you say, shouldn't we be emphasizing God's grace? Isn't it all of grace? Shouldn't our preaching and counseling be all about grace? And of course it should be. But what makes us think that the warning of God's wrath is not His grace to us? We are not giving to our friends or to ourselves or to our people all the grace that God has for us if we do not make known that the wrath of God is coming. God is nothing but grace to His children. But this grace can come to us in brighter and darker hues. And so Jesus does that here for for our good and because He loves us. Beloved, I would ask you, how often do you warn people about the wrath to come in hell? How, How often do you love people like Jesus and warn them about the wrath to come in hell? Uh... Parents, how often do you warn your children about the wrath to come in, in hell? Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible combined. He's doing so again here this morning to us. Why? Why, did, why is Jesus the one man who uh, warned people about hell more than anyone else in the Bible combined? That means if you, aside from Jesus, if you take up all the other references to hell and put them all together, Jesus talked about it more. <laughs> why did Jesus do that? Because He's the most loving man in the Bible. He's the most loving man who ever lived. He was the most loving man who ever lived. John Piper tells this story about warning a young lady who was sleeping with her boyfriend about hell. He told this story at a funeral. (laughs) This is a letter a young woman wrote to me in 1992. She came into my office in 1985 1985, a young 20-something, living with her boyfriend, having sex together outside marriage, feeling guilty, a professing Christian. I'll just read what she wrote. This is seven years later. It's the first that I've heard of her, he says. This is this woman's letter after seven years. I wonder whether you remember a very much younger me sitting in your office in 1985 and telling you I was afraid God would have to use a car accident or some other awful event to get my attention. You pointed out that the consequences of my deliberate choice to continue sinning would be nothing short of hell itself. No one had told me ever before that I was headed for hell. Missionary kid that I was. Saved at the age of six. It was a turning point in my life, and I've wanted to thank you and tell you that ever since. A warning such as that 1985 conversation made me feel all the more loved. When I preach about hell, do y'all feel loved? You should. Piper warning this woman sleeping with her boyfriend out of marriage made her feel all the more loved after I heard what you really think of hell. It reminds me of that atheist guy who says, these Christians out here don't evangelize. They are the most hateful people. They believe in an eternal roasting in hell forever, but don't tell people about it and warn them and tell them about Jesus. How much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them about that and warn them? After she heard what you think of hell, she felt even more loved. That you cared enough to tell me a stranger at that time means more than ever with the echo in my ears. Your compassion certainly came through. And then Piper says, for 20 years she sent me a Christmas card thanking me. I just saw her at the Bethel Christmas Gala last December with a smile on her face hugging me. And then Piper says, that's what wrath is for. That's what wrath is for. Beloved, love people like Jesus in our text. 
and warn them of the wrath to come. Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection sets us free to fight sin with extreme radical measures. And we will want to fight sin this way if we are truly born again. Right? This is the foundation. Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection uh, is the foundation that we can be forgiven of all our sins. That's the only way we can fight with this kind of radical uh, extremity is that we know we're forgiven. We know that we're saved. We know that we're loved by God. We know that, that we're His children. That's the way we fight. That's the foundation. The gospel is the foundation. All the things you've ever done with your hands and feet and eyes, how bad they are, how unspeakable you think they may be in church, all the bad things, wicked, sinful, unspeakable things you've ever done with your hands and feet and eyes, if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. It doesn't matter if you've been doing it for 5, 10, 15 years, whether you're in your 80s and a sinner, you are forgiven in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. That you can be totally forgiven. John Piper writes, the only sin that you can successfully defeat is a forgiven sin. Through the gospel, we are in Christ. We are born again. We have new hearts. We have God's Spirit. And so we fight this way. Because we're in union with Jesus, because we have His Spirit, because we know Him and He knows us, because we know we're loved by God, because we know that we're totally forgiven and accepted in the Beloved, we fight. We fight. Because we love Him and we want to please Him. Yes, all sin is ultimately a matter of the heart, but we must guard what we allow to influence our hearts. And the amazing truths about our identity in Christ will only serve to make us hate sin more. God grants new hearts that hate sin and want to fight this way. Charles Spurgeon said, Everything that offends God ought to offend us. Al Martin said, Christ died and the Spirit was poured out and the privileges of adoption and justification are given not to make us indifferent to cutting and plucking out, but to make us effective in that exercise. The privileges of grace are not to make us careless regarding sin, but to intensify our hatred of it and to give us power to conquer in the fight against it. And that's what the Bible says. Romans 6.13 Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, He saved us from hell. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Beloved, everlasting life and everlasting death are worth this fight against sin. Everlasting life and everlasting death are worth this fight against sin. We, we have everlasting life in Christ. We have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in Christ. We, we, we will, joy will increase forever and ever in the presence of God in Christ. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes someday. There will be no more pain. No more death, no more suffering, no more sin, no more heartache, heartbreak, no more disappointment. Someday, soon and very soon, we're going to see the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the Lord and and that's worth fighting sin. Everlasting death, eternal fire, the hell of fire is worth fighting against sin this way. Hell is everlasting, never-ending torment and punishment beyond the greatest pain we could ever imagine. Other places, Jesus describes the worm does not die because the food of the worm is always there. The food of unrepentant sinners. The fire never goes out because the fuel of the fire is always present. The fuel of unrepentant sinners. And it never, ever, ever, ever ends for them. Hell is so bad because God is so good and great and holy. And I was 
interacting with uh, someone who was giving me good feedback, not from our church, someone I knew from a former church, but but she listens to my sermons and she was was saying, telling me about a, a situation in, in which she, um, you know, ha- had trouble with the wrath of God and and. And, and people sometimes have trouble with the wrath of God because they, they, they liken it to a, a, a family member or someone in their past who goes off the handle and, and loses their temper and gets angry and wrathful. And, and, and that must be what God's wrath is like. No. God doesn't lose His temper. God's anger is absolutely and always righteous, just, and good and perfectly fit for what justice demands. God doesn't fly off the handle. God is a righteous judge. He's a good judge. And the infinite wrath of God in hell is deserved by sinners. Jonathan Edwards wrote, How strange it is that men can enjoy themselves and be at rest when they are hanging over eternal burnings and not knowing how soon the thread by which they hang will break. And if it breaks, they are gone. They are lost forever and there is no hope. Consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How depressing it will be when you are under those terrible torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it. When you shall wish that you might be turned into a toad or a serpent but shall have no hope of it. When you would rejoice, if you might, but have any relief, after you shall have endured these torments millions of years and of ages, but shall have no hope of any release. After you shall have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and stars in your greatly sorrowful groans and lamentations without rest day and night or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered After you shall have worn a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope, but shall know that you are not one bit near to the end of your torments. But there will still be the same groans, the same shrieks, the same sad cries unceasingly to be made by you, and that the smoke of your torment shall ascend, but forever and ever your souls, uh, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies. Uh, which shall have been burning all this while in these glowing flames shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast throughout all eternity, which will not be at all shortened by all the punishment you have already received there. Oh, unbelieving friends, don't go there. Anyone here is an unbeliever in the room, online, please, Don't go there. Please, please, please don't reject Jesus Christ and go to this dreadful place where you are playing with sin in your life. Where are you playing with sin in your life that leads to this horrible place? Those of you who are believers... I do hope this puts a spring in your step. Because what was just described as best He could with words is what the Lord Jesus saved you from. Woo! Woo! Yes! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! That, That should make you sing this final hymn with some pep! I mean, we've been saved from that! I'm not gonna go there. I deserve to go there and roast forever. I'm not going. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The good news of the Gospel is this, beloved. All the sinful hands that would ever be forgiven were counted on that cross as Jesus' sinful hands. All the sinful feet and all the wicked things they've done and where they've gone that would ever be forgiven were counted as Jesus' sinful feet. All the sinful eyes and lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life, all the things sinful eyes have done and desired that would ever be forgiven were counted as Jesus' own sinful eyes by imputation. And He was cut off. He 
was cut off. He was utterly cut off as no one in the history of the universe had ever been cut off on that cross. Yet He was without sin and did not deserve to be cut off. He was thrown into the fires of God's anger and judgment where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In our place condemned He stood when He died on that cross. But for Him and for us, the worm did die. The worm did die. The fires were quenched because the infinite God-man did quench the infinite anger of the infinite Father. And then He rose up from the dead in victory. And now those dreaded fires of God's anger are quenched forever for us who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It don't get no better than that. It don't get no better than that. It just don't. Jesus is the God-man who warns us not to tempt others because He hates sin. And He commands us to fight for holiness with extreme measures lest we end up in hell. And why does He do that? Because He loves us. Because He loves us. This grace and love to receive Jesus. This this is grace and love that Jesus is, is warning us today. It's His grace and love. Jesus quenched the fire and cooled God's ire on that cross dire. Now He's our all, our great desire. To speak of God's wrath, we must have tears. For in God's hell are greatest fears. It burns for everlasting years. The heartache there will have no peers. So please awake. Open your ears. The Christ who saves through word appears. Trust in the Son with all your spheres. He'll save you from these dreadful tears. He died and rose your guilt. He clears. He'll take away hell's fiery fears. Replace them all with happy cheers. God's heart is not for eternal damnation. He longs for all to have salvation for He loves all of His creation. From every language, tribe, and nation. From every walk of life and station. So He sent the Incarnation. God and man in one summation. He died and rose. Death's termination. Believe in Him as your foundation. And you'll enjoy no condemnation. And give to Christ all adoration. To stop your sin, cut off your hand. That is your great King's demand. So draw a line down in the sand. Choose your King and sin withstand. Oh, come our God who has all planned and grant the grace that you command. Heaven's better. Though you're not complete, avoid hell without two feet. For there it's never-ending heat. The worms don't die, but always eat. With many stripes you will be beat. But heaven's joys are complete. Nothing else can quite compete. Plus they grow to more elite. There all things grow ever sweet. Children play, dance in the street. And how can we receive this treat? Escape the everlasting heat? On that cross, Christ took our heat. And for our sin, His body's beat. Then rose your sins all to delete. He crushed the devil in defeat. Now sits upon that highest seat. At God's right hand, His job's complete. For He has done the greatest feat. Christ Jesus conquered every temptation. He sovereignly rules over all of creation. He hates all sin. It's a vile degradation. He calls us to fight with extreme indignation so we won't go to hell under fiery damnation. For Jesus has died, took our wrath separation, then rose up alive for our justification by faith alone and His imputation. We are righteous in Him, our praise fascination. Now by His power, we fight sin devastation and love all His people, our joyful obligation. For the God-man has come, so there's no condemnation. So we praise and obey from His Spirit inspiration. Father, thank You for this warning from Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that He loves us enough to warn us about sin. Lord, we pray that You would keep us from tempting others. We pray that You would help us to fight with extreme radical measures uh, the sin that's still dwelling in our lives. Lord, we ask that we would grow in holiness, grow in Christ's likeness. Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for giving us Jesus who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ to fight this way. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ to receive these warnings from Jesus as grace and love and mercy. And Lord, we pray that we would fight sin in the way that you teach us to, Jesus. Father, we pray for anyone here today who is headed for hell, that you would use Jesus' warnings of hell to awaken them just like this woman that you used John Piper to minister to. We pray that, that even today there will be letters written thanking, thanking, because the wrath of God was preached and sinners were saved. God, do that and help us rejoice in our great salvation. Thank you, Lord, that for believers we will only look with our eyes and see the reward of the wicked. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen.